Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 163 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. Well, it's been a solid week of sunshine, the hives are dripping with nectar and I've also started collecting some pollen. Listen in to find out why. beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. Hi everyone, I hope you're all enjoying another beekeeping week wherever you may be. We've finally had a run of warmer, sunnier weather and the bees have certainly been making the most of it. This has been both great news for honey production but also a challenge because of the swarming that's continued to happen. Locally, We've been enjoying several days of sunshine and daytime temperatures in the low 20s Celsius. I think we must have maxed out at about 24 or even 25 degrees Celsius at some points, but somewhere around 78 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. Even better news is that the overnight temperatures have also risen, and this is good because it means colonies can send out more bees earlier to forage, stay out until it's almost dark, And it also means the overnight activity within the hives doesn't slow down as dramatically because the bees now don't have to cluster to keep the brood warm. Here in Norfolk, I'm seeing the end of the oilseed rape nectar flow. The fields have turned from bright yellow to green. Certainly, that's happened in the last week. I had thought I might get another week out of it, but it's gone over quite rapidly. And that spring nectar rush is starting to slow down. That's not to say the tap has been turned off. There's a definite nectar flow still on and the bees are certainly making the most of it. Now I know this whole nectar flow thing is going to confuse some beginner beekeepers. And What the heck is a nectar flow and what does it mean for us beekeepers? Well our seasons provide a range of plants with optimal conditions to reproduce. This could be through a number of ways but The one we're really interested in in terms of beekeeping is in flowering plants and the need to help or encourage insects to pollinate them. Plants have evolved with insects or insects have evolved with plants and in some cases with other animals such as hummingbirds for instance. But evolution has meant plants now offer a sweet carbohydrate reward to any insect willing to stop by and have a drink. At the same time of course pollen is shed and as the insects move from plant to plant that pollen helps fertilize those other plants and fruits develop and so the plant succeeds in developing those fruits with seeds that other animals will carry off and deposit away from the parent plant and thus the cycle continues. Okay so that's not the greatest explanation of how it all happens and there's obviously more to plant reproduction than that but you get the general idea I hope. At these set times of the year lots of plants offer up nectar as a food source and reward when there are lots of other plants all flowering at the same time and there's a rush to take advantage of it. Overwintered hibernating insects such as bumblebees are looking to build nests quickly and need a ready source of food for themselves and their colonies and of course our honeybees need to build up reserves of honey depleted over winter and so the race begins. In spring particularly 
honeybee colonies are looking to reproduce, and that means swarming to you and I. But what happens if colonies swarm and don't leave a store cupboard full of honey and pollen? Any remaining bees may well die if the weather turns cold and wet, so the bees need to build up reserves of food prior to swarming, and that's where the partnership between plants and insects works so very well. The nectar flow is the peak period for flowering plants at the particular point in time that they, the plants, are looking to maximise their reproductive potential. The bees and other insects take advantage of this glut and fill their nests or hives with as much nectar as possible. I'm just starting to enjoy a glut of asparagus myself. Seems we can't eat it fast enough before the next stem is ready. Give it another couple of weeks and I'll be fed up with it. But then we can move on to something else. Equally as delicious, new potatoes perhaps. Anyway, what do you see in the hive when there's a nectar flow on? And what can you do to help? Well, this week we've been seeing that nectar flow. And what we see is pretty much every cell in the brood box filled with nectar. The bees that are out foraging return to the hive and appear to just dump the nectar wherever they can before heading back out again to get more. When you inspect your hive and tilt the frame to try to spot eggs, the nectar just drips from the cells down onto the top bars and the other frames in the brood box. If you should need to shake the frames to look for queen cells, don't be surprised if you get a soaking. I've lost count of the number of times I've returned home with my bee suit covered in sticky nectar. Of course, this is one of the contributors to swarming. A sudden reduction in the amount of area the queen can lay in and an increase in the available food that is left for the colony once the swarm has disappeared over the hedge line. And no amount of adding space will help if the bees can't immediately store the nectar in cells. So, Adding supers of foundation at this point just isn't going to help. I'm sorry, but that's just the way it is. So what do you need to reduce the risk of this overcrowded, dripping cascade? Well, here we have a kind of catch-22 type scenario. What you really need is drawn comb, but you can't get drawn comb unless there's a flow on and the bees can draw out that foundation you've given them into nice fresh comb. But without drawn comb, the bees are likely to run out of space and swarm, thus reducing the number of bees you have to draw out any foundation you've given them in the supers that you want to be drawn out as nice fresh comb. So we see the beekeeper adding supers of foundation, one, two, four, it really doesn't matter how many, it's generally not going to help. The bees simply swarm and the beekeeper, me in particular, swears. The supers get removed, or not, as the case may be, and the wax foundation gradually dries out and becomes unattractive to the bees so that when it's needed the next time, the bees don't really like it and just build comb in all sorts of directions and certainly not how we want them to build it. At the end of the season, these frames get taken out, can't be extracted, so we have to cut them out and start the whole process all over again. It's just so frustrating. Drawn frames of fresh comb are worth their weight in gold, it seems. If you can get the bees to draw out the foundation and get it filled, you're on to a winner. That is, of course, unless we have a cold, wet start to the season, 
and the oilseed rape honey that's been stored in the frames starts to granulate. And then of course you have to cut the frames out and start over again. Been there, done that. Now this isn't always the case and sometimes, just sometimes, the bees work with you and there are boxes and boxes of nicely drawn comb. It all extracts really well and the frames and boxes can go back on the hives to be filled once more. Summer honey production is much less fraught. We don't have the challenge of the oilseed rape honey granulating in the comb and here in Norfolk my summer season blend of wildflower honey is predominantly brambles which is high in fructose and less likely to granulate. It also tastes of summer fruits, totally delicious and something I can hardly wait to get my hands on. So my honey production stumbles from season to season depending very much on the weather. If we get a good run in the spring, we get a good crop of extractable oilseed rape honey, frames with drawn comb are reusable and our summer crop benefits from an increase as the bees don't have to draw out lots of comb before they can store the honey once more. But that's a pretty big if. Mostly we see granulation, cut out comb, add more foundation, do what we can over the summer months and extract that. You might think we could then use that summer drawn comb the following spring, but we have a late season crop of ivy honey and that sets solid in the frames and needs cutting out too. So we're back to square one in the spring again. You just have to love beekeeping, don't you? I mentioned collecting pollen at the start of the podcast. It's something I don't do a great deal of, but mainly because it feels like a specialist piece of equipment is required and I don't really have the skills, tools or time to make up pollen traps. You can buy traps to fit on the front of hives and I did try this before. Unfortunately, at the time, I didn't really understand what I was doing and bought Langstroth entrance pollen traps and tried to fit them to national beehives. Trying to fit them frustrated the hell out of me and annoyed the bees immensely. That was a long time ago and I'm very happy to report that the Honeypaw Poly Langstroth hives that I use have the option of a pollen trap that fits into their ventilated floor. I'm back in business collecting pollen and this time I don't have to worry about the mismatching pieces of kit. The pollen trap for the honeypore hives simply slides in from the back once the vent has been removed. It takes a bit of getting used to but if you take your time it can be changed quite easily. One thing I have found which is working quite well is the removable front. So on this particular pollen trap the bees need to exit the hive through one way and come back in so that they travel through the pollen trap grid. That knocks the pollen off and into the collection tray. What you mustn't do is leave the trap in place for too long otherwise the colony will run out of pollen to feed to the young larvae. This entails removing the pollen trap after 24 to 48 hours. But what I've found is this, when there's a decent flow on it means there's a lot of pollen stands to reason right so here's what I did and it works brilliantly the apiary that we currently have the pollen traps in is quite a number of miles away from me so it's a costly effort to get there and back and of course it takes fuel to keep going backwards and forwards just to remove pollen traps but here's the thing the front section of the pollen trap is removable 
and this allows the bees to sneak in past the pollen grid and into the hive, retaining their pollen. So having the insert pushed in means I get all of the pollen, but have to go back the next day to remove the trap to let the bees have the pollen again. But by removing the front section, it allows the bees to sneak back in with their pollen loads intact. So what happens if I leave the main body of the pollen trap in place, but just remove the front? Well, mostly the bees sneak back in and I don't get much pollen at all. But when there's a nectar flow on, there are so many bees going back into the hive that some are forced to go through the pollen grid and they drop their pollen for me to collect. The bees sneaking in through the gap retain their pollen, but I get some of the excess pollen and I can leave the trap in position for a week at a time. What I have found is some colonies share quite a lot of pollen with me, while others don't drop anything. Yet inside the brood box, they all appear to have plenty of pollen for their needs. So why am I collecting pollen? Well, initially, I thought it would be another opportunity for a product to sell. Lots of people seem to want to eat pollen. There are lots of websites out there proclaiming how much of a superfood pollen is. Obviously, with not much science, if any, to back up their claims of what it does or doesn't do. Which is why you won't find anything like that on my website, yet people do seem to want to buy it. I'm a commercial beekeeper looking to maximise my returns, so why not sell pollen? This season though, I'm actually feeding it back to the bees. I'm using it to feed the queen rearing colonies, so they have enough food to produce vast quantities of royal jelly to feed to the larvae that are going to become our new queens. Obviously, all the usual precautions regarding disease, health and hygiene are being put in place. Colonies must be disease-free to donate pollen, and the pollen is being frozen prior to being fed back. With this, I hope that as we go through June and any shortfall in forage occurs, I'll have plenty of pollen to feed back to them and keep our queen-rearing programme on track. Well, that's it for this week. Don't forget you can subscribe to my podcast and get the very latest tips and techniques from me each week as they're released. And as things stand, it's going to cost less than a couple of Starbucks coffees. And remember, that's drive-through prices. Anyway, head over to my Patreon page and sign up to my Podcast Plus tier for the very latest beekeeping chat. Well, that's it for this week. I'll catch up with you all again next time. But for now, I'm Stuart Spinks, and that was Beekeeping Short and Sweet. Sweet.